The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. So we have been studying. Uh, all the way through misreading scripture with individual size. We've talked about the way that honor works in the biblical world and how we can better understand some of the um, the inside insider language, the the verbal cues that scripture gives to us that a system of, uh, of, of community, that a system of family is at work in the text that we are not used to, and we might be tempted to skip over that language and help to show how that works. And then we spent the last several weeks talking about the, the way that shame works. Uh, both of those are different tools that cultures use to reinforce their core values. So in our culture, we, we talked about our culture is based on um, on justice and not exactly our opposite because we, we wanted to distinguish between it's not honor shame they're not sort of like flip sides of the same thing they're two separate tools but if you if you had corollaries to those tools that in our world it would be justice and guilt and the way that we see the world around us it has to do with individual actions individual consequences because we view the world from an individualist perspective that's uh, part and parcel of, of who we are, but the world of Scripture, and especially the world of the Old Testament, doesn't operate in, in those categories and in those terms. And so honor and shame language are things that are foreign to us, but when we learn how those work in an individual culture, it begins to open up Scripture to us in uh, new and exciting ways. And so we've been talking about honor and shame, and appended to the section on shame is a section on boundaries. What, what are the, the things that mark out a culture as being different from another culture? Uh, and, and how do boundaries work in the world uh, of, of Scripture? But what I thought was interesting as I was reading through the chapter was thinking about the ways that we have boundary markers in our own world. Because, of course, it's not just a collective thing. It's, it has to do with the way that human culture works. We, we understand ourselves in terms of our identity. Now, for us we tend to see ourselves and identify ourselves as individuals, and yet we carry these tags along with us. They, they make us a part of larger communities. They make us, and sometimes those communities are separate. Sometimes those communities that we belong to overlap because of the, the nature of the, the modern, postmodern world that we live in. But I was thinking uh, about those things. Do you guys have some examples that you thought of as you were reading this when you think of uh, the ways that we have boundary markers, group identities in our own uh, situation, in our own culture? I mean, like national borders is one. Is a, right. Is a big uh-huh. one. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, because the borders, it, it was interesting. In, in the book, they were discussing uh, the way that those borders work in a Bedouin world, and it was very... It's just very plain. Our 
our our region is from that hilltop to that hilltop and the valley in between but for us we're like well we've divided the world artificially up into these quadrants and so the northern border of the united states follows one of these made-up lines except for the parts where it doesn't and then because the, the cartographer was a little <laughs> drunk that day right and then part of the southern border is going to be divided up by a river but only part of it, because also there's the, you know, and we have to get into this whole complicated narrative about how the, you know, the same thing is true about uh, about states. I remember uh-huh. the, the History Channel had, a, had an entire series on how the states got their shapes. And it was it, it was all of the stories about not just, you know, it, it was the individual stories that states had for why they're shaped and divided up the ways that they well, that's are. It's like they with just Kentucky fascinated. having that dip in the western tip. Yes. Yeah, like that one, again, with cartographers just not keeping track of things properly. Uh-huh. Like, uh, I guess we just connect these lines. Okay, we here we go. Yep, exactly. It's funny because our border with Canada is supposed to be a straight line, but people couldn't figure out how to do an exactly straight line, so it mm-hmm. kind of goes a little bit like <laughs> And then there is an actual American city that you cannot get to without crossing yeah. borders into Canada, and mm-hmm. it's part of the continental U.S. It's not like it's in right. Alaska. Which one is that? I, I can't remember. It's I can't in remember if it's Michigan? part of Minnesota or Michigan. Is it the little something? Yeah. Huh? Minnesota. Yeah, but it's like it's like as far as geographical <laughs> territory is concerned, mm-hmm. it's it's Canada. Mm-hmm. As far as legal territory is concerned, it's a city in the U.S. It's just funny the way that it it ends up that way because of you know we decided that the lakes are going to be the 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 boundary marker, and so if you cut a line lengthwise through these lakes, it ends up with this really strange sort of shape. And then you have that, that you have to navigate around or through or across or over or something. When I was going to school in uh, New Brunswick, Canada, people mm-hmm. thought that I must live like really far south because Wyoming has Montana between mm-hmm. it and the mm-hmm. Canadian border. But the reality was we were only five degrees longitude difference. Mm-hmm. Oh, between really? where I went to school and where I grew up. <laughs> yeah. Because they're like, oh, yeah, it's snow before. And I was like, oh. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it snows a lot. Well, as I was reading, I was thinking about, you know, I grew up in, in Phoenix, and, and Phoenix was, uh, was influenced by um, common sort of urban development in the, in the 40s and 50s. And so they, they laid the entire city out on a grid because it's in a valley, and it's a sandy valley. So there's not really any topography that you have to deal with. Like there, there, there are some hills, but you know, not not anything major. And so it, it, it's as though you just had this valley and you just laid a grid over the top of it, and you know, sort of like carved the mountain section out of the grid. But sometimes the grid still works like around the mountain. Like it, it, they still line up. There's just you know, Camelback Mountain in the middle of it, and the grid continues on the other side. You have to go around, but. Theoretically, it's still the same road that just doesn't connect to anything. But growing up there, because it's such a large city, there were distinct identity markers depending on what suburb of the city you lived in. You know, you could tell somebody was from Queen Creek because those were Queen Creek people. I'm saying that because my mom listens in on the podcast. And so, 
you know, now she's one of those Queen Creek people. Yeah. <laughs> but they were, you know, it was, like, it was like Queen Creek, but they weren't snobs like over in Ahwatukee. And, you know, those guys weren't nearly as bad as the, as the Scottsdales. We called them Snotsdale, the, the, the richy rich people over on that end of town. It was just like you had these communities. But, but honestly, if you were to travel to Phoenix now and you could just drive the, you know, there, there's, there's two big looping freeways. If you drove those looping freeways, you would never be able to tell that there was a difference between anything that you saw. It's just cookie cutter stucco houses with adobe roofs as far as the eye can see. Like you wouldn't be able to tell, but people that live there, they understand their identity based on the town that they live in, even though the town is just, it, it's just a continuation of the town. But in, in the book, the authors were talking about living in those, in, in those areas, you understood the, the culture of the place that you lived because of, those individual markers that you found. And obviously that's easier in, in ethnic communities. They talked about, um, you know, one of, the, one of the authors living in a, in a Puerto Rican neighborhood in, in New York. Obviously there are easier to, to notice. They're, they're at least more visible. Right, they physically look different in, in those places. Or the other author talking about living in the Armenian community, uh, you know, in, uh, I don't think he said Beirut. where it was. Did he? Was it, it Beirut? Beirut? Okay. But I thought that was fascinating. Did, did, did that... Did you have any ideas like that that sort of popped up in your head? Uh, not when I was reading it, but with you talking about it here. Um, at the karate group system the, that I was part of in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. You know, you have, you have the, the lineage of how the system came to be in the form that it is. Sort of like tracing back, you know, disciple to teacher except in martial arts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's... And then you would have, within a main core style, you would have branch-offs. Mm -hmm. And so the different branch-offs would distinguish themselves by doing things slightly different. Mm -hmm. it, our style was a lot softer and more large, round movements in our forms than in other related styles to us. Mm -hmm. uh, every style has the like the the coon the thing that they would say mm -hmm. the sort of the not not a mantra like the closest would be like the code of ethics for the style mm -hmm. it's and you just you memorized it so that was one of the rituals that you would do mm -hmm. and so and then if like uh, Elijah said you have your belt system and well one style's belt system might look different than another style's <laughs> belt system it's, and so that's Mm -hmm. Maybe think, well, that's not that a lot of different boundaries mm -hmm. in there. Yeah. Not while I was reading it, but when, um, <clears throat> when as we were discussing, I, I keep coming to mind dress like different people dress differently, like, mm -hmm. and it's more seen in like the, with teenagers or in high school, like the yeah. goth folk and the the, <laughs> the high school clicks, the rednecks and the cheerleaders and the jocks. They mm -hmm. all kind of have their own dress. Mm -hmm. And style of talking sometimes too. the nerds and the, the brainiacs and the band kids. Mm -hmm. Well, we kind of mentioned this in our in in our like before Bible study discussion, but talking about the the not just the marker of being an Anglican, but which kind of Anglican okay. are you, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of the and those are not geographical whatsoever. They have nothing to do with with geography really. They have entirely to do with uh, you know personal belief systems uh, and a lot of times just with affinity. Who did you get connected to? Uh, you know, like that's your kind of way into Anglicanism. Um, like sometimes, especially in, in England, 
that plays out in the style of clerical collar you wear also mm -hmm. like um right. you know, if you're an evangelical you wear uh, a round collar if you're anglo catholic it's a tab collar and then mm -hmm. how big the tab is tells if you're broad church or more catholic and i mm -hmm. i don't th i think a lot of those nuances are lost to us in the u.s but apparently like you know if you're anglo catholic in england you wouldn't be caught dead in a round collar it's right it's evangelical. yeah 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 the evangelicals wear the dog collars yeah and i think that that's true oftentimes of um of other real I'm, I'm just trying to I'm, I'm thinking back through my own experience in sort of the american religious landscape you know you have the the tradition that you're born into and oftentimes that just that just becomes part of your identity right like oh well we're methodist or we're baptist or you know baptist with a b baptist you know it it just becomes part and parcel of who you are um and then if you walk away from that, then the new group that you become a part of, the identity of that group becomes really important to you, right? Uh, which can be kind of frustrating sometimes for, for people that have been doing it for a long time, right? The, the we, Pastors especially will joke about like, oh, they have that the new convert. They've, they've got the, the new convert smell. Yeah. Where they, uh, there's... Yeah. There was a uh, Bible Illustrated video. This is a, God, I can't remember which Eastern European part he is, but he's Orthodox. Okay. Uh, and so he, you know, does these little illustrated videos about mm -hmm. either Orthodox life or books of the Bible and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And he did this one about uh, new converts who are <laughs> super, super, super zealous about Orthodoxy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. And I mean, that's, it's not just orthodoxy. No, it's, but it's like you know, every it's, group. Is it's like, every single group. Yeah. When you have somebody that, that's coming into a new tradition and they just want to sort of grab all of it and they Especially want to be all Especially if it's of very it. different from a, from a tradition that they were strongly a part of mm -hmm. beforehand. Because mm -hmm. I know like if for uh, my brother and I, this is much more high church than any Protestant church around here. Mm -hmm. And so coming from that where we were very, you know, it strongly attuned to that coming into here you know that was something that we could do very easily uh, mm -hmm. don't know how much we did but mm -hmm. but and so i i know that that's something that i think that how strongly they you know grab onto the new identity yeah. it depends on how strong the identity was they left behind to take the new one mm -hmm. Yeah, and the book kind of lists for us three things that those boundary markers do. And I think what we're discussing is sort of the 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 overlap between mm -hmm. two of those. So I wrote those up on the board under boundaries. We're not going to spend our entire time just discussing those because there's something else I want to talk about tonight. But, but those are that boundaries define our identity. They tell us who we are. They communicate to us. This is who we are. And we're going to talk about this more in the next chapter. So next week when we talk, we're going to talk more about this. But they also, by defining who we are, they also define who is not us. And that is an important function that boundaries play. And I think that it is, it we devalue it in the individualist West um, because for us, the priority is equality. We, we think about equality as a universal... Uh, universally just and good uh, trait, but in the majority world, and especially in the in in, in the the ancient world, uh, strangers aren't safe. Um, and in fact, that's one of the the hallmarks of Christianity is that Christianity 
pushed pushed those boundaries. Uh, like I said, we'll, we'll talk, we'll, I'm getting ahead of myself. But that's one of the hallmarks of Christianity is it says, no, we're going to change those boundaries because... Well, because of something we're going to talk about in just a second, right? So before, before, before I get it, but also they don't just define our identity, they define our values for us, right? They tell us that they, they sort of set out a fence and they say within this fence, this is where we belong and we stay in this fence with these values. So they reinforce and enforce those values, right? It's that same language we use when we talk about honor, when we talk about shame, we talked about justice, we talked about guilt, we talked about uh, fear and power, those the, those those different ways of seeing the world, they do exactly that. They enforce and they reinforce the culture's values. And boundaries have that same effect. They, they tell us what, uh, what is the, the place where we can go and what's the place where we can stop. And I don't mean physical places, although sometimes those are marked out, right? The, the, the description of the Bedouins who, who knew which hilltop belonged to whom because they just knew the countryside. They, they knew that that's how that worked. But also, the, in, in, in terms of my own behavior, the way that I talk, the way that I dress, uh, the way that I interact with other people, all of those things can be limited because of those boundaries, because the culture has explained to me or interpreted to me or described to me, this is what makes us us. This is what makes we we. And so because I belong to we, then that's the way that I behave. There's also a part of that even here where in certain places certain behaviors are acceptable mm -hmm. like that's been a, a source of lots of conversation in our house recently mm -hmm. is at school this is behavior that's okay with your buddies is not okay at school yeah and behavior that's okay with your buddies or language that's okay with your buddies is not okay mm -hmm. with adults right. or at the dinner table mm -hmm. and so like we've been having lots of those conversations mm -hmm. and that's a hard thing to learn i think in childhood is what does it look like for me to move to 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 move continually because those those boundaries in our world i think a lot because of because of how mechanized our life is and because of of how um information driven our life is those the boundaries that we have are so permeable that we find ourselves having to move you know like I, i'm just thinking about today as i, I, I was sub, subbing at the high school and i could watch the kids as they were coming down the hallway behaving one way and when they come around the corner to come into the classroom then it's they they understand i'm crossing one boundary into another boundary and the attitude, like the way that they sat, the way that they behaved, the way that they, even their volume level dropped, like it, because they understood that they were coming into that, that new space, but it has to be, it has to be learned. It's not something that just happens. There have to be structures in place. And of course, in, in the way the book describes them in our world, that would be right guilt, or it would be justice. That was, that, that was how we reinforce those values, right? If you don't do the things in the classroom space you're supposed to, then there's punishment, right? You you done wrong, now you are punished. And in a collectivist culture, it would be uh, it, it would it would have to do either with honor or with shame, and that was that was how that's reinforced. Um, you know, it might be like in in the not the last chapter, but I think the chapter before that where they talked about saying Abe to the child, say just just that word shame, shame. You know, the, just speaking those words, so the child is reminded, oh. Actions have consequences, and I, I need to do the things that are expected of me. But I think that, that in, in our world, there's a lot of, of permeability in those boundaries. And I think 
I just imagine for kids today that it's that requires a lot of learning how to behave in different ways in a lot of different spaces, right? So it defines our identity. It tells us who we are. It defines our values, but it also defines group membership, right? So there is, when, when we have boundaries set up around a culture, it also means that there are ways in and out of that community, right? It tells us that, that if, if those boundary markers aren't there, then we are moving inside or outside of those boundary markers, right? Where there's, there's a way of transgressing boundaries uh, or even leaving them behind entirely and finding new groups or moving into new communities or new households. And that is one thing that I don't think the book up to this point has spent a lot of time talking about. It's how individuals or how communities move from one system into another system. Uh, even if it's still within an honor system, they haven't talked about like what does it look like, what does it look like for the early Christian church to bring people into the church who are from uh, from communities that normally the the people in their community wouldn't have anything to do with. What does it look like for for the the you know the the local synagogue to say we are Jesus followers and then all these pork eaters show up, like. There, there has to be a way for us to expand those boundaries, right? Because this is a really, I mean, we, we kind of looked at that, right? That this is a really intense conflict that, that erupts in the church because of that specific issue. Uh, you know, what do you do when these people come in? And, and we need to navigate that some. And they do a little bit of that more in, in the next chapter. So we're, I'm, I'm not going to spend all the time. But what I liked, and this was toward the end of our chapter, okay? The, the diagram that I put up on the board here. What, what I appreciated about this is this idea of membership and identity and values, all of those things, that each one of those things is informing and shaping the other parts of that. This, this idea that honor and shame and boundaries, that identity and membership and values, all of these are not, it, it's not just one thing. Because for us in, in, in the, the sort of Western post-enlightenment world, we love to have things in categories. We're saying, this is honor, this is shame, this is bad. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in our lives, right? Like, we don't, we don't actually have those categories in our head. We're not thinking, well, this is a justice issue and this is a guilt issue. We, it's, it, it's innate. It's something that we, that we know and we understand and we feel. It's like a gut reaction to those things happening, right? And it's the same way in collectivist cultures. The honor and the shame language, the, the, that way of seeing themselves and seeing themselves as part of something much larger than themselves. Uh, and, and all of that is something that happens without thinking, right? The, the, the phrase the authors in this book, and especially in the last book, used over and over again is the things that go without being said. What is it about human culture that goes without being said? And how can we step back from that for just a minute and say, we need to put names on this. Now, these are not going to be universal names. They're not going to apply 100% of the time, all the time in every place, but they're going to help us to understand how that works. So I like this idea of, of, of all of these things sort of moving together. Each one is being shaped by and is shaping the other one all the time. This constant, fluid, circular movement between, uh, between boundaries and values and identity that all of those things are informing each other. And this is why this is so important for us. This phrase that the authors use on page 211, where they talk about boundaries in the Bible, and they say this, we tend to read the Bible backwards because we know the ending. 
And as soon as they said that, it was like a light bulb went on for me. That like, was my favorite section of the chapter. That was, it was absolutely fantastic, right? And so the authors take that. They say, what if we put ourselves in the place of the people in the story? And we say, what if instead of assuming everything that we know from, from the, the end of the story, what if we simply said, what was it like for Abraham to live in a world where gods only existed from one hilltop to the next? And that was it. And you had one God that said, I'm God, and I want you to go and keep going until I tell you to stop. And then Abraham says, or Abram says, okay. So he gathers all of his things and all of his people and all of his stuff, and off they go because this entity that he encountered this this spiritual force that he encountered did that because for us we we know that the father is the creator right we say that every single week when we worship we believe in god the father the almighty the maker of heaven and earth we believe in jesus christ his only son our lord we believe in the holy spirit the lord the giver of life we know who god is and so the temptation for us is to look at this in, encounter that Abram is having with God and say, oh, well, obviously he would have done that because that's God. But Abram doesn't know that. He hasn't had that experience with God. He doesn't know any of those things whatsoever. And yet he goes. This God that he follows has no name. He seems to be somehow kind of focused on fertility because he keeps promising that Abram is going to be the father of a great nation. He's going to have a son and a family. Um, he promises a child. He promises a land. But then it doesn't seem to work out. And then we hear that phrase. I love that they pointed this out, that, that the, the Hebrews refer to him as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And for us, we hear that and it's full of like this, this mystery, right? The, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But really it was, there's this God who doesn't have a name, but apparently those three people believed in him. And that's it. That's what that means. In their context, they're saying, well, there was these three guys and they worshipped this God, whoever it was that he was. You think about being uh, being a, a Hebrew who who doesn't have that connection, who doesn't, who doesn't have that kind of a, a memory. Their only experience of life is, what they've seen in Egypt, right? Where they are constantly, continually surrounded by religious practices, religious observances. There was a um, there was a great courses that that I that, that I took several years ago that was all about common everyday ordinary life through the ages. What did it look like to be a peasant in? you know, the, the, the upper Nile? What did it look like to be a peasant in Mesopotamia? What did it, you know, so it was based on archaeology. It was based on, on you know, so, some historical reconstruction. But what did that look like? And in most of the world, that looked like you have this constant rhythm of, of rising and working and sleeping. And it was punctuated with festivals. And the festivals were chances for you to have a break. And they were a chance for you to celebrate with the community. They were a chance for you to eat and to drink, uh, usually more than you had the, the, the rest of the time. And that was, that was, for most ordinary people, that was the only experience of religion that they had. It was simply, 
we can go over to it, 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 we can go over to that place and that's a place where there's there, there's food and fun and you know i mean i suppose they'll you know they'll they'll do some divination or something but it didn't for normal ordinary people it didn't connect to the way that we in the individualist world think like religion for us is this deeply personal experience and they don't experience it in that way it's just you know, oh, well, you go over to the to the river god and you hang out with the river god. Well, I hang out with the the Abraham and Isaac god. That's that that's the god that I hang out with. And yet, what they've said in this book over and over and over again is that what God continually is doing in Scripture is using culture as a means to draw people to Himself. That that's what God is always doing. That Abraham doesn't understand and can't understand who he's interacting with. And yet God, through Abraham's, uh, Abraham's lens of experience, draws Abraham into a new kind of relationship, a new kind of trust, a new kind of devotion. And it changes Abraham. And apparently it changes the trajectory of his family. It changes Jacob. It changes Isaac. Their, their lives are different because of this encounter. And some of that waxes and some of that wanes as, as the story goes on. But what we see again and again is that God is meeting people in those places and drawing them to himself. So they talk about, uh, you know, the, 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 the promise that this God had made to Abraham didn't seem to go anywhere. But then Moses shows up and starts proclaiming this God who, who he gives the name to. And he says, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who said that my name is I am, and I am said, let my people go. And when Egypt doesn't, I am systematically destroys the other gods, which is what happens in every single one of the plagues. That this God is saying, okay, if you won't do that, then I'm going to begin to unravel those identity markers. He's making the Egyptians not Egyptian anymore. He said, if you won't let my people be my people, then you won't be a people anymore either. And he does that by taking away their wealth, and he does it by taking away their stability, and he does it by taking away their power, and finally he does it by taking away their future. And so they follow him, right? They, they, they say, obviously this is a God who's going to protect us. We're going to follow this God. And they don't do it well. <laughs> and they, that describes they, the rest of the Bible. <laughs> really, the, rest, the rest of the Bible is they do a really bad job of it, right? <laughs> Until we finally figured it out. Right, we yeah. figured it out. So we've yeah. got it down, right? Yes. The Anglican way. That's, that's, that's the way, that's our the way of doing it. Our Anglican way in particular. Ours in particular, yeah. yeah. Not all the others, just Great ours. Exactly. Just not even Great Lakes Diocese, specifically St. Anne's. <laughs> Ours is the only one. Everything else is just made up nonsense. <laughs> right? But again and again, that's, I, I love this. This whole section was, was, it was so important to me to hear that because, because it reinforces what I had to pull myself back from describing just a minute ago, which is that the thing that God is doing again and again is he's saying he, he respects the boundaries that the people that he interacts with have, but he is constantly pushing those boundaries, constantly pushing them to be larger and broader than the people understood until they get to a point where, uh, you know, where they talk about them being in, in exile and, and they live in not their land anymore. There's, there, there's no temple anymore, so God doesn't have a house. Uh, there's no priesthood anymore, so God doesn't have food. Uh, there's, no, there's no worship anymore, so God's name isn't being spoken. 
and they live in the land that belongs to Marduk. And so the Babylonians say, sing us one of your songs. They said, how can we sing songs? God can't hear us. This is Marduk's house. We live in Marduk's house now. Our God can't hear us. That's, that, that's what the Psalms are saying. In Psalm 137, how can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? And for us, we're like, oh, that's very sad and melancholy. It's not melancholy. It's empty. It's, it's not just sad. It's hollow. Yeah, it's like because the, the common view was that Yahweh had lost. Yahweh had lost. Uh-huh. Marduk won. Yahweh lost. Well, I mean, and that ties in with some of the stories from earlier in the Old Testament where uh, the Syrian general whose name begins with an N, but I can't remember, you know, he had uh, leprosy. Oh, Naaman. Goes, yeah. Naaman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, goes to Elijah and has told, you know, go into the river and wash. He does. He's cured. And he goes, let me take some land back with me mm-hmm. because I serve in the temple but I want to worship properly. Mm-hmm. He is like in his mind, he can't worship properly if he doesn't have Yahweh's land with right. him. So that's why he, his request is for, you know, jars of dirt. Mm-hmm. And yet what happens? And the prophets begin showing up and the prophets describe God in a way that he hasn't been described up to this point in, in the Old Testament. In, in the story of God's people, they haven't described him as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And now as the as the prophets begin to describe to them what it is that God is doing and has been doing all along is simply not dispersing their boundaries, but redrawing them based on his own boundaries. Because he says that I am God and that his being God supersedes those familial boundaries and it supersedes those cultural boundaries and it supersedes those national boundaries that this is the king of heaven that this is the lord of lords that this is the the that this is god who is enthroned upon the the powers uh right he, he describes that this that this is the this this god who has been revealing himself bit by bit is instead something so much more than than we had ever imagined and then all of that grandeur shrinks back down into one person, right? That, that whole immensity of God's self-revelation in the Old Testament is then laser-focused in the person of Jesus Christ who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when that happens, what he begins to do is transgress those boundaries and say, no, I'm going to tell you where the Father's boundaries are, right? It's not simply because those those people have a different father than you. These are going to be the places where is the spirit at work, then that's a place where God is. Is this a place where the spirit is welcome, then that's a place where God is. Is this a place that rejects the spirit, then God walks away from them and goes on to his own place. And this, this boundary then begins to envelop everyone who's around them. And so when the early church begins to expand... That's that. That's one of the things that they have to do at the beginning is say we need to we we need to have a clear understanding of where those markers are in our own lives. What does it mean for people to change the way that they see dietary laws? What does it mean for those people to uh, to to live and work in pagan environments that may or may not bring them continually and regularly into contact with idol worship? How do we? How do we navigate the, the stories that the world around us is telling about who, who we are versus how we tell those stories? And so then when Paul begins to write his letters, those are the things that Paul is addressing again and again. He's saying, you need to 
be clear in your conversations with the people who are around you about what the boundary markers are. And it has to do with a new family. And it has to do with a new name and a new calling. It has to do with new values. And it doesn't reject the concept of honor and shame. It doesn't reject the concept of justice and guilt. But rather, it transforms both of those because that's what God has been doing the whole time. He's been taking human culture, human society, human hearts, and he has been transforming them through his presence, through his grace, through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that the story of God all along has been understanding that this is what culture looks like and that God works through and around all of those things in order to draw people's hearts back to him. And that's been the work that he's been doing from the very beginning, right? So next week, we're going to read the chapter uh, entitled Guarding Boundaries, how we keep us, us. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in Scripture, and then we're also going to talk about what that looks like in, um, in the modern world that we live in, all right? Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.